0: A mother would, almost every day of the school week, awaken her two boys with these words, Son, it is time to get up and to get ready for school. The first boy would respond by lazily, reluctantly opening an eye briefly and then falling back into a deeper sleep. The other son, with the same words, would respond differently. He would immediately awake at his mother's voice and begin to prepare for school. What is the difference between these two boys? Why the difference in their responses? The first boy essentially viewed the words of his mother as suggestive. introducing the idea of wakefulness but not demanding anything and because he finds her voice soothing he's lulled back into sleep the other boy interprets his mother's words as authoritative demanding an immediate response and so he awakens and gets himself ready. Many consider the word of God as suggestive, merely introducing ideas, but ideas that carry no particular force or demand no particular response. The paragraph before us that was read in our hearing develops the theme of the believer's response to the Word of God. James, in the first 16 verses, deals with the theme of suffering and also with that of temptation. Even though he speaks about wisdom, there is an argument to be made that even within that passage, wisdom relates To this question of how to handle suffering. James would tell the readers of his letter that God sends or allows us to enter into trials but that God never tempts. And clearly although the language is the same, the same word for temptation and for for trials, one is used negatively, that is, temptation. God himself cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone to do evil. James would continue to teach us that God, while he does not send us temptation, that we receive from him every good and perfect gift, which come from above, from the Father of light. And one of the great gifts that we receive from God from above is the gift of the new birth that is emphasized in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruit of his creatures. But having introduced the language of the word of God, the word of truth, he now tells the believers that if they are to make progress in the Christian life, there must be a continual adherence, a proper response to the word of God. The true spiritual maturity depends in large measure on one's response to this word of truth, this word of God. James outlines in verses 19 to 27, Three essential responses that the people of God ought to have regarding the word of God. The first response we find in verse 19. That is, if the believers are to progress in the Christian life, they must, first of all, commit themselves to hear the word of God. So then, my beloved brethren, Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. There is a textual variation so that some translations will have it. Essentially, knowing this, that might very well be the case. James expects that what he's about to teach belongs to the corpus of information, the body of truth that they've already received. Knowing this, my beloved brethren, Christians are... God's people they are beloved of God and beloved by each other and James says knowing this my beloved brethren let every man be swift to hear slow to speak and slow to wrath the first response then to the Word of God is that one must hear the Word of God this is not a minor theme in the scriptures It is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament and you find that particularly in the Pentateuch and particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. There are some 14 instances in Deuteronomy when Moses appeals to the nation of Israel to hear God's word. And I know that though there is this abundance of the usage of Shammai, the Hebrew term Shammai, though it means more than just hearing audibly with the ear, that it does involve this notion of compliance, there is first of all a necessity to take account of God's word. One must hear the word of God. The New Testament places emphasis upon hearing. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The book of Hebrews warns, it says, Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in Hebrews chapter 3, in verses 7 and 8. James then likewise emphasized the need that believers are to hear the word of God. They are to pay particularly particular heed to the word of God. He says, verse 19, Let every man be quick to hear, be ready and alert. Be prepared to hear. Now, it is not that James is encouraging us to be busybodies. There are some people who always like to hear things. As soon as they see two people talking, they move very close. They want the latest bit of gossip. They want to know what's going on. That is not what James is arguing for. There are some people who, just by nature generally don't like speaking and like listening. They learn things, they get information. James is not suggesting, though I don't think that that is wrong, that we should be listeners in that sense. But that's not what James is saying. He's not just saying that people should be general listeners. In the context, he's calling upon them to be eager and attentive in hearing particularly the word of truth. Contextually, they are to... Be eager, be swift to hear that is the revealed Word of God that is expounded in their midst. Because it is the Word of God that reveals the will of God. It is the Word of God that clarifies the nature of God. That there can be no true knowledge of God apart from the Word of God. That all that God intends us to know has been deposited in the Scriptures. And so the believer must be eager to hear all parts of Scripture, as it is the revelation of God himself. But James knows that if one is to actually hear the word of God, it requires some preparation. And that is why he states in verse 19, Let every man be swift to hear. But if we are to be true listeners, and hearers of the Word of God, there is a place for opening our ears and shutting our mouths. And so he says, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. Slow to speak. That one must exercise self-control over speech, not arguing and contending with one another. It means that if they are to hear, They must stop speaking. Do you realize that when people are talking and you're talking, you can't really hear what they're saying? James is telling us that if we are to be true hearers of the word of God, we must not be so swift to express our own ideas and our own opinions. Be swift to hear and slow to speak. Moreover, not only one must one prepare himself or herself for hearing by being slow to speak, but one must be slow to anger. People who often desire to expound their own ideas can easily find themselves engaged embroiled in disputes, and disputes leading to outbursts of anger. And by anger, James does not merely mean irritation, but that burning attitude of, of hostility. You and I will generally respond negatively to people who outshine us, who dare to outshine us in conversation. And if they tie us up in knots, at least verbal knots, we won't be happy. We move away from arguments to attacking people's persons when we are outwitted in conversation. Well, James, James says one must be quick to hear slow to speak and slow to anger. They must keep a lid upon anger. Now, the scripture does not suggest that all kinds of anger must be avoided. There is such a thing as righteous anger, especially in the face of evil. But clearly, James says that if we are to be true hearers of the word, if we are to grapple with the word of God in any serious way, we must be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Why? Well, he continues in verse 24, explaining why we must not give way to anger. Because that will impede our hearing of the word of God. He says, for of his own will, or rather, for the wrath of man, in verse 20, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why must we refrain from anger? Now, this, this might seem contradictory, especially if you balance this statement with what is said in Psalm 76 verse 10. He says the, the, the wrath of man does not produce ra- the righteousness of God. And now he's not talking about now, forensic righteousness, justification, but that moral Righteousness that God demands. The wrath of God does not produce the righteousness that God demands. That's what he's saying. It may seem contradictory. If you read Psalm 76 verse 10, the psalmist Asaph says, for the wrath of man, or he says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. The psalmist says, the wrath of man will praise the Lord and God will gird himself with the remainder of his wrath. But now, James says, the wrath of God does not produce righteousness. So how can human wrath praise God on one hand, according to the psalmist, but on the other hand, it doesn't produce righteousness? Seem, at least, contradictory. We need to remember that there are two different contexts here before us. James is dealing with anger in the life of believers. Believers. And he declares, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He declares that anger does not promote a righteous life. Anybody who gives himself or herself to anger will not live in righteousness. It will not lead to a godly life. But Asaph is describing anger against believers. And he's, in a context of Psalm 76, he's talking about God's sovereign power, God's sovereign reign over his enemies. How he plunders the wicked. How he casts down the mighty warriors and brings them down to the sleep of death. God is the one who judges his enemies. And then he says, God is so great, so that even the wrath of the wicked expressed against God's people God will use the wrath of the wicked for his glory the wrath of man will praise him, he will use human anger and opposition and hostility to his people to bring glory and every last bit Moita tells us of human wrath against his people God can harness for his own purpose and so there's no real contradiction How must we, if we are to mature, respond to God's word? We must be, first of all, swift to hear, slow to speak. And we prepare for that by being slow to speak and by refraining from anger. But the second response that is required for those who will grow and mature in the faith is that they must not only hear the word, but they must receive the word. That occurs in verse 21. James says, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, excessive abundant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. The key part of verse 21 is the command, the imperative, receive with meekness the implanted word. One ought to hear the word, but secondly, one ought to receive the word. Before James comes to the imperative, that is, receive the word, he tells them that there is yet again preliminary work to be done. First of all, they must put aside sin. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow excessive, that is, excessive wickedness. He says they must put off. It is like stripping off one's clothing. They must strip off filthiness, moral defilement. They must remove from themselves the evil that is so prevalent in their lives. For what James clearly perceives is that no one will be able to hear the word of God And to receive the word of God if that person continues to embrace sin. That sin is a hindrance to receiving God's word. So he says negatively, if you are to receive the word of God, this is what you must do. You must put off all filthy conduct, all immoral conduct, all defiling conduct, and the excessive wickedness that is so prevalent. But positively he says they are to receive with meekness the implanted word they must receive the word interestingly we are reminded by paul in 1 corinthians 2:14 that the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit he does not welcome them for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned the term to receive means to welcome To embrace, we read in scripture of the Bereans who when Paul preached, received the word of God in all readiness. In Acts 17 verse 11, Paul reminded the Thessalonians that they received the word of God in much affliction. He tells them that they welcomed it not as the word of man, but as it is in truth, The word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Now James says that the proper response to the word of God, if we are to grow, is that we must welcome the word of God in our hearts and lives. We must not merely be those who are hearing the word with the ears, but we must be actively welcoming, embracing, and appropriating the word of God in our hearts. We must accept the word we hear as the word of God and as the rule of our lives. We must offer up the, uh, our hearts to God to allow the two-edged sword of the word of God to search us and to judge our motives and our intents. We must allow the word of God to search our hearts and to shape our thoughts and our affections and our conduct. We must accept the word of God. You see, anyone who is going to grow in the faith must hear, but he must embrace the word of God. The word of God must not be seen then as for everybody else, but for me and also for you. So James says, therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive, receive with meekness. One must appropriate the word of God. In other words, that when we hear God's word, we must say, this is God's word for me. I, I, you know, I was, I was amazed. Years ago when I was in a pastor in a, little pastoring in a little church, over closer to 20 years ago, and I got to the door and one lady came and shook my hand and said, Pastor, thank you so much for that wonderful word. I, I just wish my friend were here to hear it but I wonder whether she had actually heard it herself and so very often people think of the word of God this would be good for that person to hear this would be good for that person to hear but what about us when God's word is declared and when we read or when we hear it we must appropriate it for ourselves this is God who speaks to me this is directed to me God has taken me by the collars, and God is speaking to me It must be received. But it must be received with meekness. Meekness, humility. We must never seek to transcend the word of God. We must place ourselves low beneath the word of God. That it rules over us. With humility of mind. James continues and he says, We must receive with meekness the implanted word. The word of God which has come, the seed of God's word which dwells within us, that word which regenerated us. But that word must be, although it dwells in us, it must be continually appropriated and received and embraced. We will not grow unless we are owning this word or we are accepting it for ourselves. He describes this then as the implanted word and as the word which is able to save their souls. This world that is beneficial. This word which leads us away from sin and to righteousness. Which operates at the center of our personalities and functions not only transformatively but savingly. How do we respond if we are to grow? We must hear the word. We must receive the word. But there is a third response that James presents to us And we must respond in this way he tells us in verse 22 this is the heart of the passage but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself it is not sufficient to hear the word and to receive it as meant by God for us the word of God must be obeyed and so James says but be ye doers of the word. This is the third and the major imperative in this passage. And he will make three statements regarding the obedience that we should express to the word. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. There's a command to hear or to obey the word. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what, he, what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. First of all, James calls us to obey the word. He requires that we not only hear and welcome, but that we do or we obey the word. This is, a, this is a, in fact, a needed corrective in our age. Because there are many who will delight in the grace of God. And we believe that we are saved by grace, and this is part of our tradition here in this church. We believe in saving grace. And this is something to be cherished, this is something to delight in, that we are saved by the grace of God. But we also need to know that saving grace has a corollary. It has also the necessity of obedience. That where there is true saving grace, it will always be followed by obedience. We must never therefore separate the saving work of God and the life of obedience that it requires. James says that we must be doers of the word. It's a a call, it's a command to obey. And scripture again is replete with call to obedience. We must obey the word. Now James teaches, he says, be doers of the word. He does not mean that they were not obeying the word, but he means be continual doers of the word. Go on obeying the word of God. And do not be us only deceiving yourselves. James says if if one hears God's word but will not practice God's word, that person deceives himself. He may think that everything is well, that he's making great progress because he's very attentive to reading scripture, hearing it preached. Even saying this is meant for me. But if he does nothing, he deceives himself. He thinks that he is safe and secure by hearing. James says he is deceived. It is self-deception merely to hear. It is possible for someone to delight in the word, to marvel at its beauty, and to even sense something of its, its power working in the heart. And yet, does not obey. That person is in great danger. James calls for obedience. He illustrates the difference between mere hearing and obeying. He compares one who hears but does not obey to a person who gazes at his face in a mirror and goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like, what he saw in the mirror of himself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who observing his natural face in a mirror For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person or what kind of man he was. What he's saying then is that the man who does not obey the word of God is like somebody who looks at himself in the mirror, and what he sees of himself has a fleeting effect upon him. It has a temporary effect because he doesn't realize what he looks like. You know, most of us really don't know what we look like. Did you realize that? I mean, I mean, you may not be a great artist, but if you were to be asked to sketch a portrait of yourself, just draw your pic- your, your face, you you probably will end up looking much more handsome and beautiful than. Yeah. Okay, let me not go down that, that road. there. We tend to uh, overestimate and accentuate what, what what ought not to be done. Well, we forget what we look like very quickly. It has a temporary effect. And James is saying, similarly, the person who hears God's word and does not practice it, the word of God will have a temporary effect upon him just like when he looks at himself in the mirror and goes away, that sight that he has has a temporary impact, temporary effect. In other words, if the word of God is to have a permanent impact on our lives, we must obey it. Because it is only as we obey it that we are going to remember it. It is only as we do it that it will change us and have an impact on our lives. James persists. He says, for this man observes himself, he goes away and forgets. Then in verse twelve. But 25, he, com- he contrasts the man who forgets what he looks like, this temporary hearer. He says, for he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so he points out that unlike the temporary hearer upon whom the word of God has a fleeting effect, the one who gazes, who looks intently in the law of God and continues in it, as he looks at this perfect law of God, the revelation of God, he looks into this word of God, this teaching of God, this body of truth that is perfect, free from all defect, error or deception that is full and complete, it will lead him into liberty, freedom. It is the law of liberty. And if he continues in it, not as a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed. So blessed that eventually he will enter into eternal life. Not because he has earned it, but he has given proof by his life that he has a relationship with God. So James calls them to obedience. Their response to the word of God is that they must be not merely hearers, but doers of the word. And he tells them that they ought not to be temporary hearers because the word of God will have no impact on them, just like a man looks at his face in a mirror and goes away and forgets it has no impact on him. James says that the path, the path to obedience, the path to obedience then is not merely hearing God's word. But rather, one must gaze intently. One must give himself to look seriously into the word of God. To commit himself to the study and to the searching of the word of God. Now, having called them to obedience, the imperative to obedience, and showing the path to obedience, which is to gaze upon the word of God, James, in the final two verses, speaks about the marks of obedience to the word of God. What does a person who commits himself or herself to obey the scripture, what does a person look like? How would you you assess that, summarize that person? How would you characterize that individual? Well, James does that in verse 26. He's going to tell us the mark or the evidence of a person who's obedient to the word. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. He's been teaching them about be doers of the word and not hearers. But now he says, let me give you three examples, three marks, of a person who is being controlled and directed by the word of God, a person who has welcomed the word of God, in whom the word of God dwells, and a person who's obeying the word. The first mark of a person who is obedient to the word of God is that they will control their tongue. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, that he has a spiritual relationship with God, that this man has the fear of God in him and does not bridle his tongue, that is, he does not rein in, put a lid upon, he does not control his tongue, that person, he says, his religion, his piety... His his worship of God is vain. It's useless. And so he says the first evidence that one is obedient to the word of God that is that one will keep a check over one's language. He will go on to talk about the tongue later on in this letter. One must control one's tongue or one's religious one's religion is useless the second mark he lists and the, in fact the third mark i uh, found in verse 27 pure and undefiled. that is genuine religion pure and undefined religion worship of god piety to god is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world that anyone who is obedient to the word of God will not only control his or her tongue, but secondly, they will care for the needy. The Bible makes it as a mark of emphasis, at least for Israel, that they were to care for widows and for orphans. Specific instructions were given because God wanted Israel to protect the vulnerable in their midst. The defenses in society were important to God. And so there were instructions given, for instance, in Exodus 22 or in Deuteronomy 14. In particular, we see in Deuteronomy 26 that the Lord required Israel to give the first fruit of the harvest to the priest, and that the widows and the poor and the orphans were to be cared for out of the first fruit of their tithing to God. God has a special care for people who are in need. And James says that a mark of obedience to the word of God is that one who is serving the Lord and whose religion is genuine, that person will visit orphans and widows in their trouble. They will care for those in need. They will not be dominated by self-interest, but they will put the interests of others, especially those in need, above their own interests. Why? Because, you see, fundamentally, God is compassionate at heart. And God calls upon us to be imitators of him, be he imitators of God. And if we are to imitate God, since God is compassionate, and compassion is an attribute that can be enjoyed and shared by believers, then we are to imitate him in compassion and in love to those in need. So James says, a controlled tongue, care for the needy, are marks of those who are obeying the word of God. God commands us to care for those in need. But the third way we demonstrate that we are obedient to the word of God is that we do so by separating from the corruption of the world. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their troubles and to keep oneself unspotted or unstained, unsoiled from the world. Obedience to the word of God will mean that we not only demonstrate it in social concern to the needy, but that we will guard ourselves. Guard ourselves against the pollution and the stain of the world. This, this verse does not, in any sense, commend the world. It sees the world as a polluted place. A polluted place. A world that contaminates us morally and spiritually. And James says that if we are obedient to the word of God, we will demonstrate that by guarding ourselves so that we are not stained by the world's pollution. We'll take a careful watch over our lives, over our words, over our deeds, over our practices. We will not practice the sins of the ungodly around us. Now, James is not suggesting that these are the only ways that we show obedience to the word of God. But these are essential part of our obedience to God's word. We care for the needy. We control our tongues. We keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Now, when you read a passage like this, it's clear there are commands given. James issues a number of commands. Let me, before I even make any more applications, suggest to you that you are not to take from this that James is suggesting That we are able to save ourselves by what we do. James is not presenting these as a means to be saved. He's saying this is what you should be like because you have been saved. He's already told them in verse 18 that God by his own will, that it was a sovereign will of God. It is God's own plan and purpose by which they have been brought forth or regenerated by the word of truth. And so in verse 18, James has already laid down and made it very abundantly clear that salvation comes from God. We are not saved by works. But being saved by grace, we must produce good works and a godly life. So salvation is a supernatural work of God. But we need to know that that spiritual growth requires proper response to the word. We need a greater appreciation of Scripture and of the Word of God. We must read and hear the Word of God as God's love letter to us. We are always in our world embroiled in discourses. We listen and we engage to what we hear on television, accepting or rejecting. We hear talk in the restaurants around us when we eat. People are talking about the state of the economy, the impending election, the affairs of this life. And many of these discussions, whether it be the impending bankruptcy in Greece, the performance of the Blue Jays or whatever, may be of some value. But let us be clear that, however significant the discourses of the world are, the greatest discourse in which we are to be engaged is a discourse with the Word of God. We are to hear the Word of God because it speaks to us the things that are eternal, the things that really matter. And the response that we must give is that we must first of all listen to God's Word with intent. We must listen. Wanting to hear God speak to our hearts. We must welcome the word of God. Store it up in our hearts. Thy word have I hidden in my heart. That I might not sin against you. We must meditate upon. Ruminate and reflect upon the word of God. Do you realize that you and I would have no hope. And no relationship with God had there not been a revelation from God. If we were only able to see God in nature, we would know something of his power and of his Godhead. But there would be no saving revelation to us in nature. So God has given us revelation, not merely in nature, but revelation in scripture through the apostles and prophets, and given us revelation in Jesus Christ. And we are to embrace this revelation as God's word for us in this age. Praise that this word of God is transcultural. It goes across every culture and every age. Amen. And it was good enough for Paul, I will tell you. It's still good enough for you and for me. You must welcome it. I'm amazed at how many Bibles there are. Translations. Paraphrases. And how little reading there is of Scripture. We must listen with intent. We must welcome the Word of God. We must not become forgetful hearers who have a, a temporary sight of the Word, a temporary acquaintance with it. But rather we are to look into the Word of God. We are not to look at the Word. We are to look in the Word. The same language is used of the beloved disciple who comes to the tomb where Jesus' body was laid and he looked into the tomb. He was looking to find something. And when you come to the Word of God, you must give your heart and mind seeking to receive something. Something. Paul Paul would have us do this, James would have us do this, the entire apostles would have us give heed and attention to the word of God. And we must obey the word, otherwise our religion is worthless, our profession is without value. We must obey it in our speech, in our caring for others, and in guarding against the pollution of the world. May I say before I draw to a conclusion that a proper response to the word of God requires that we deal decisively with sin. One of the reasons, and I would hazard a guess to say that it is signally important, one of the signal reasons why the word of God does not have much more impact in our lives it is because it is blocked by sin. We are submerged under sin. And the Word of God, therefore, does not have the impact it can. Jonathan Swift, in the novel Gulliver's Travel, you remember that novel? Gulliver is shipwrecked, going to the East Indies. And lands on an island. And he awakens. Unable to move. Remember that? His hands and feet. Even his long hair. Is pinned down. But you know. The people who pinned him down. Were not giants. Who were they? Little people. You couldn't even call. They were minuscule. He was a giant compared to them. But these little people with bits of thread tied him down. And my dear friends, very often it is not major sins that keep us from hearing and responding to God's word. It's those little people, those Little sins that we don't think to be important. Those sins that we will allow into the establishment with pride. These are not the kind of hawkish, embarrassing sins that we run away from. These are the little polite sins. The little sins that people will think it's quite fine. But after a while they weave their web around our hearts. And they form a barrier around our hearts so the word of God does not penetrate. We cannot hear it, we cannot receive it, and we cannot obey it. And I'm saying that where there is a true response to the word of God, there must be a first, a rejection of evil, a rejection of sin. Now the question is, how do we do this? My dear friends, it does not lie within our power. If we required God's saving grace to change us and to make us new people, we require God's sanctifying grace. And the good news is this, that for all who genuinely wish to make progress, to respond to God's word and to show the fruit of obedience to his word, that if we ask and if we seek him, we will find him that he will give us the grace and the power to live holy lives and to be obedient to his word. Know this, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not not, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We can never be people who will love God's word and pursue his word and embrace his word except the Lord does a work within us. Amen. But God is willing. The question is not whether God is willing, is whether or not you are willing. And we must come then with open hearts. We must come to a place where we are willing to make a decision. Lord, let your word abide in me. Lord, I hand myself over completely and I give you those secret cupboards of my heart. Those areas which are untouchable, tabooed, Those areas of my heart where I've closed the door and will not allow you in, Lord, I open, I swing open those doors and ask you to take control. You see, my dear friends, the grace of God is able to make us and to change us into the image of Christ. Depend upon God's grace. Be brutally honest with God and say to him, Lord, I will not surrender to your word. I will not love and receive and obey your word unless you do a work in me. And if you plead, and if you seek, and if you call, and if you knock, God will hear. And he'll make you malleable, open to his will, ready and receptive to do his will. May God grant you grace as you seek his face, that you might hear his word, welcome his word, and obey his word by the grace of God, for Jesus' sake.